The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today I'm speaking with B. Dawson, the well-known author. Hi, B. Oh, hi there, Dave. How are you? Great, great. Now, a lot of people will know you, uh, a lot of the listeners here will know you for your Air Force books, but you 
have much more of an array of uh, books that you've written over, over the last few years. And um, how would you sort of describe yourself as an author? What, <laughs> uh, how would you? <laughs> well, I think that I think you couldn't make the mistake of thinking I was a particular expert or anything. I'm, I'm a freelance writer, and I therefore I work as a commission base. Um, I, I work on commissions. I um, I get very interested in whatever I'm doing, and I'm particularly interested in the people side of things. So I, I, I'm a self-styled social historian because I write the stories um, about the things, whether it's the Air Force, like Hobsonville or Woodburn, oh, oh not Woodburn, not yet, <laughs> Wigram, or, or, or um, the Thalo Bays I'm doing at the moment, or... Um, Heavy haulage and house moving I did recently for the Heavy Haulage Association or Rural Histories or whatever. I'm really trying to get all the facts, but I want better. My goal is to make it a cracking good read. Right. So I think that I rather hope that with my books that the people who read them will turn the page before they've noticed they got that there won't be any effort to read. They should be enjoying the story. And the facts should all be there, but they might be tucked in surreptitiously. Right, I get you. Yeah. So there's a, as I say, there's quite an array of different books you've done. There's um, recently you've you've done one on uh, Pukititi Station on the East Cape, a sheep station. You've done um, one on um, the, the Mary Potter Hospice, which must have been quite a, a hard story to write. I would imagine writing about a hospice. Well, and surprise, done... Surprisingly, not really, because you sort of think oh. it's a year as you spend with sickness and death, really. But actually, it's a year spent with the most extraordinarily positive and interesting people with a great sense of humour, like the sisters and everybody who works there. And actually, I've sold them laugh so much. Oh, right. It, it was well, wonderful. It was, a, it was very, um, very, very interesting topic with some I spent time with a lot of very good but still very funny people. Right, right. And and your book, you, um, you mentioned the heavy haulage, Mighty Moves. Well, that must have been a really interesting project. Oh, oh, that was an absolute cracker. That that, that was fantastic. Um, Craig Walker, who's um, father Mick Walker, used to be um, CEO of Hobsonville, uh, is a, a house mover. And Craig's now, of course, is an honorary wing commander for in the Air Force. Based at, um, he. He's very supportive of the Nurpi and the Air Force, and does, you know, is, is really in, enjoys those Air Force links. Right. And um, so that's how I got onto doing that. And honestly, I I don't know anything about trucks. I didn't then. I don't know much about them now. But they, <laughs> but they decided they wanted their folklore. You know, people were dying, and they wanted the stories recorded. And um, that was just fascinating. I went all over New Zealand and got the most magnificent collection of photos that some of them have been collecting and the stories of how these these blokes can never say no they don't say they just are the most positive creative problem solvers and it was such a pleasure to work with them right right and you which, which was your first air force book Scott, i'm trying to remember it's high flyers that's right that, that, that came out in 2002 that was that was commissioned to um uh, mark 25 years since the Women's Royal New Zealand Air Force was done away with and um, uh, and, and that was really quite an inspirational sort of thing to do. It, it came at a time when morale wasn't very good in the Air Force but actually I just went around and met these wonderful women and thought wow, women are doing all these extraordinary things 
It was also the best year ever to do this book because right. Kelly Logue had just um, got her wings and was and was flying the Skyhawks. And right. so, and then a year later, there weren't any Skyhawks. So it was the only year we could have had a, a woman strike pilot featured. Absolutely. And I, I remember um, when I first flicked through the book, I was quite surprised that some of the ladies in there I knew from, from my time in the Air Force. So, yeah. Um, and it's now it's history when you look back. It's, well, it's, it's a while like, ago. At the time, it doesn't seem to be so much history, but now it's a, it's a mm. moment in time. And what I tried to do, I mean, they gave me a photographer to work with, and I wanted everybody to sort of know half the story before they even started to read it. So the f- photography was very important. And right. um, it also was hugely important to have the the widest range possible of trades and experience. And so whether it was a dog hander or a supplier or um, a pilot, um, medics, we just tried to get, or, or chaplain, we just tried to get, just a really wonderful range in there. Right, right. And, of course, um, following on from that was Spreading Their Wings, which was about the wartime WAFs, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, well, that was great. That was fantastic. I, I met some magnificent women when I was doing that. And um, one of them I've visited recently, she's 101, Evelyn Bove. I interviewed her about Lathala Bay in Fiji as well. Right. Uh, and so, once again, I, it, was, it was surprising to me, as with the first book, the trades that women did in the war and, um, you know, teaching, training, um, sort of bomb aiming, bomb aiming trainers. And that's not quite the right term. Um, and, um, you know, quite a number of years as photographers and, uh, things like that. I mean, they, they, they were put into very diverse occupations. It's actually quite amazing how the WAF sort of just, from nothing and uh, when it started it just suddenly almost exploded with so many girls wanting to get into it and uh the the diversity in the trades as you say and it must have been like a whole revolution for young girls to to join the WAF and I guess the other two services as well at that it time was it was the, it really was um the time of their lives for many of yeah. them they tended not to see the nasty things they tended to be you know well out of harm's way they they a lot of them before then were doing boring jobs or being at home being ladies and with very few career options for them. And suddenly yep. they're there in uniform on the base. They were up in Lothala Bay. They were, they were vastly outnumbered by the number of men. They had an amazing social life. Um, and um, also they were just trained in something. They were busy. They were doing something very worthwhile and a long way from perhaps what could have been a rather mundane existence before them. Right. So I, I haven't yet met a WAF who doesn't really love the time they spent in the Air Force and the war. Well, that's exactly the same as how I've found. I've, I've interviewed a number of WAFs as well, and they all loved it. And some of them did some very important jobs as well. Some of them, you know, a couple that I've met did really highly secret jobs, and they still wouldn't talk about it all these years later. So... You know, really quite amazing. Yeah, that's always disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> mm, it is. It is. I there's one particular lady here in Cambridge who worked in uh, she worked in the um, um, headquarters in, in Wellington, which was the old Dominion Museum building, yeah. and uh, she was she was in charge of uh, being every day being up to speed with where every aircraft was in the Pacific that we owned, and um, 
there was a lot of other stuff that she wouldn't tell me about. She said, no, I can't talk about that. I can't talk about that. And I said, come on, it's been nearly 70 years. And she still wouldn't talk about it because she'd signed that official secret. Yeah, out. I've come across a bit of that as well. Though mm. Actually, I think it probably doesn't matter so much now. But um, anyway, yeah. they took it seriously and, and so they ought. But but um, this, this, the, the, the cipher officers were much in that. They, that was, you know, they certainly... Signed a secret act. Some of them had to work underground, you know, in, in underground mm-hmm. um, operations rooms, and that was certainly very hush hush. Yep, exactly. Well, there was an operations room in that museum uh, underground. Is that right? I think I, I think one of the people in. Sorry, I'm a bit rusty, but um, one one of them worked there, and one down in uh, Southern Group headquarters down in Kashmir and Christchurch, and yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm trying. I, I would have to look it up to remind myself who did what. They took over a house, dug out. Um, they then dug out the floor and put in an underground bunker, uh, and nobody knew it was there because it just looked like the house that had always been there. Mm, no, there was an awful lot of stuff going on that most people wouldn't have known about, and the, and, the, yeah. and the quite often women were involved in it. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. And uh, then, of course, you went on from there, and you've done the books on Wigram and Hobsonville, and those are great. Those are wonderful. Uh, records of those bases mm, yes well that was it's been a real privilege to do all this work um and uh hobsonville i i had lived on when i was in the air force and i used to um go there sometimes for work but i and i kicked myself of course by the time i got to the book many years later that i didn't ask all the obvious questions and that i had no real interest in what had gone before so, so rather belatedly, I discovered how fascinating the history was and all the, the early history. And, and the same for Wigram, of course. When you're there sort of in early Air Force years, you don't um, really think about the history and your forebears. You're thinking about getting through the reality of your officer training, I think, probably. Right. Um, right. But, but, but I, I found it one of the things that I really set out to do is if you look at some of the traditional histories, um, of the Air Force, the early ones, you could, you could be forgiven for thinking that everybody who was in the Air Force was a, a pilot, a high-ranking pilot, and probably a war hero. Because yeah. the, and we have lists of names, and you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of they're really the only people who merit much mention at all. And um, which, of course, I feel is quite um, an unfortunate angle. I mean, really useful books, but. You know, it's a whole pyramid of people working there, and and there was a much broader base of of people who are non-commissioned technical people, support people, and there's such a wonderful diversity of trades and experiences. And so I've always set out to make sure that I interview as wide a range of people as possible, plus plus wives and neighbours and anybody who can give a perspective. That's that makes it much more interesting for me. I, I totally agree with that. I've always been interested in the social side of the Air Force, and, and my major focus is on World War Two. I will admit, but um, uh, it's it's you know almost a shame that there's there's no that there's not many uh, ground crew guys that have written their autobiographies. Um, there's only a couple that come to mind actually, and that some of those guys, when you meet them, and 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 the WAFs as well, when you meet them, they've got fascinating stories oh, to tell. Wonderful stories, and. Um, Actually, almost everybody's got a story, or at least mm. one story. And 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 the one thing, one thing that I find is when you first approach people and they say, "Oh well, I I really didn't do very much," and say, "Well, you know, I wasn't a pilot. I wasn't 
the war, I wasn't doing such and such. And then you yeah. just start getting, you know, you have been done this, you start to say, oh, but I think I'm really interested in what you did, what meals were like or where you slept or what 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 happened, um, you know, when you went on leave. I mean, just anything. What was your uniform like? And then people get going and they realise it and they talk about it. And before they know it, they've got a really interesting story out there. And it's sometimes people are rather surprised that they knew all that. Yeah, exactly. It, it adds uh, so much more richness to the story if you if you get that uh, social side mm. and and the and the surrounding. It, it's not just flying every day or something like that. It's well, see, for, uh, and for me, that's because I'm not a technical person. I'm not really an aviation buff at all, and um, I still struggle to remember where the wings are in relation to a fuselage on most aeroplanes. Um, <laughs> and um, so, but. Obviously, I'm interested in the whole social context, and the and the marvelous thing about the Air Force is that you're writing about a whole lot of pretty ordinary people, um, quite a cross section, who have elected to work in an extraordinary organisation. So even their everyday work and living is extraordinary, even though they might be see themselves as very ordinary. And so right. most things are worth writing about because it's all all about lives less ordinary, and I find that fascinating. Absolutely. The the, the one thing that really um, gets at me, though, is that every day now there's less and less of them, and, and we're, we're losing a lot of stories that people like you and I haven't gotten to and, and recorded. And, uh, you know, it won't be too long before we won't have any more of these stories to record. So it's going to be going to be sad times ahead of it. Well, I was very fortunate when I was um, doing the um, Hobbsville book and – Wigram, uh, when um, John Hamilton was chief of Air Force, and he loved the history, and so sure he still does. And so, when I wasn't doing the books, he, I, I was sort of um, given a sort of open slather to just go around New Zealand and interview significant war veterans. And I did interview many who are sort of legends of their time, you know, even from Johnny Checkets and um, uh, Theo Delonge, and oh, just just. I just can't think off the top of my head. People, a lot, I interviewed a lot of people who are prisoners of war uh, right. in 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 Germany, and but also in uh, Indonesia, in Japan, um, and so I did catch a lot of stories. But it was still just a fraction of the ones that I'd have liked to have caught. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Yes, and I'm still interview. I'm still interviewing the, uh, the occasional war veteran if I get the opportunity. That's certainly part of my brief. Right. Right. So can you tell me a little bit about your own uh, RNZAF service? Oh, right, yes. Not many people ask me about that these days. I I think almost exactly 35 years ago, so um, I joined the Air Force as a field psychologist um, So right. because I'd had a um, background. Of, I just studied psychology at university. And um, I was initially at Wigram for officer training um, and – marching very, very badly, um, everybody's <laughs> frustration and amusement. And um, then I was posted to Woodburn, where I was for the good part of four years, I think, as the field psych there. And so then I was dealing with GSTS and, and the basic engineering um, students, not students, not really they were students, but trainees. Trainees, um, yep. Get the right term. Um and uh, which I really enjoyed. And um, then I'd often go up to 
Auckland for um, air crew selection boards, and also yep. I'd go over to Nelson to help army th- people. So most of my time was spent um, at Woodburn, though then I did have posting for a while down at Wigram at the end. Uh, so that was my sort of uh, time as a sort of Air Force officer and psychologist. Um, once again, I wasn't interested enough in the history. You know, the whole opportunities passed me by, which I would keep myself about now. Um, yeah. And then I um, it was a sort of a dependent. I married um, Sandy Dawson, doctor who some people might remember in aviation medicine, and he was commanding officer at DEMU. Uh, and so uh, at, at that point, there wasn't a job for me in the same place in, in Auckland. So that's when I left the Air Force. Okay. Um, I wouldn't have thought that 35 years later, I would still be working for the Air Force in some in some form. Right. It's um, it's interesting because we're just talking about all the different trades and um, and making sure that their stories are recorded and yours must be one of the most rare trades there was. Yeah, yeah. There wouldn't have been many of you. No, there weren't very many of us and I, I think there still probably aren't very many of us. Uh, but it sort of comes under um, yeah, sort of human resources nowadays, I think. And so I, right. I, I think interesting, interesting work, but to, to my way of thinking, not, not as interesting, not as remarkable as those who are on the flight line or, or um, making sure aircraft get in the air and then stay in there and fly to the right places. Right, right. But uh, but it was still one part of the that whole thing that keeps the Air Force running. Oh, yes, it's very, it's very important. So you could have the right people in the, in the right jobs and and help them through tricky times. I think all those things are obviously crucial. Yeah. I, I went through GSTS and uh, for TDS, and I don't remember ever coming across a, a psycho- psychiatrist or psychologist. What, what, uh, what, what years were you there, Dave? 1989. Oh, yes, no, I, I was long gone by then. Uh, so did, were you having hands-on stuff, or were, you, or, or were you actually just assessing people from afar? No, or? no, hands-on. If, or if people were... Um, if people were were struggling, they got sent to for for assessment and remustering and everything. You obviously were too too good a student, too good a trainee, too far far too good, and never had to come to see anybody to to try to make sure if you're in the right place and give you a few clues for what to do next. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you didn't have that, that experience, but it, no, I, and the selection I, I, the selection was. Um, Mostly hands-on with air crew. Oh right, okay. Anyway, anyway, so that was um. So I was in the air force for a bit less than five years, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, right. And um, yeah, I never realised at the time what a pivotal bit of my life it would be. But you know, you just so it's, it's, it is a wonderful. I I, I think it, almost everybody really tre- um, treasures the time or or thinks it was a very valuable time they spent in the armed forces, even and, and not just because of whatever trade or branch therein. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting stuff. And now you're working on uh, the book with uh, the history of Lathala Bay. That's, now tell me about that. Yes, well, that, that's great. I've wanted to do this book for years, actually, ever since I, I um, did the Hobsonville book. And and um, and interviewing people about Hobsonville, of course, a lot of the people I interviewed hardly ever went to they hardly knew Wigram. They, they certainly didn't know Tarapa or um, or Woodburn. They, they they just spent their time shuttling between Hobsonville and the Salo Bay. 
And I thought that sounded terribly exotic. And so fortunately, every time I talked to somebody who'd spent time at Lothala Bay, I got them to tell me about it as well, which means that I was interviewing for that about eight or nine years ago. And so a lot of those people are gone. So I did get the Lothala Bay stories, which has been really useful for me now. Um, And... um, but I thought, oh, this is such an interesting story. Nobody seems to even remember we had a seaplane station there for you know, a quarter of a century. Um, right. And and I've had this um, big folder of interviews and other material, which I've always sort of just kept on my shelf, hoping that one day the Air Force might decide to commission me to write a book on the Thaler Bay. So I am thrilled that they have. And it's um, it's such a lovely station to – well – Two things. One is the more I do in Lothala Bay, and I thought it was just going to be Lothala Bay. But, of course, once I started researching it, I realized that you, always you have to set things in its context. And so the context, of course, it doesn't just start with Lothala Bay being, op- being open and aircraft operating out of there. So I've, I'm setting the context of, you know, the 1930s, the, the surveys of the Pacific and um, looking for uh, seaplane and lighting areas in the 1930s. And then we have you know, 1940 when the first Air Force Detachment Unit 20 went to Nandi because this is when the likelihood of war was looking stronger. And, um, and so I've been writing about Nandi and the story as well uh, for Squadron. I'm struggling to find anecdote please someone have diaries or letters written lively letters written from the story on that nandy because i would love to be able to use those um because even though the facts are there it's a question of breathing the color into things so i've been working on on the construction of the airfields i mean that's extraordinary one that's one of the great achievements of the pacific war is, is is how our public works department largely and aerodrome construction squadrons made their airfields of the Pacific. So so that's all before I really get into Lothala Bay, and which uh, really started operating in 1942. Um, and um, and then I'm just working my way, a bit like the Hobsonville book. Some of it's, you know, opera- quite a lot of operational, but that's partly in the air and partly in the seaplane station and balancing up with, with what happened in the married quarter or in the messes and doing war- wartime during the war and also post-war eras. Um, when I get into the post-war side, which I'm only just starting to write now, um, there are fascinating extra things like all the flights up to Tarawa, which was a forward operating base, and so that really has to be included. I've got people like Robin Klitscher who have told me marvellous, with marvellous detail about how they used to go and fly into or around or through hurricanes to get the pressure readings for the Met Office, and right. that's extraordinarily colourful. And um, and Dumbo's and, you know, the SE Rescue, all those things I, I'm um, getting stories about and recording. So by the end of it, it should be, uh, hopefully, a, a, a colourful, wide-ranging story which really encapsulates the history of the RNZAF in the, in the Pacific from beginning of the war right through to 1967 when our final pullout of the final detachment happened right and it's um it's interesting people listening out there they might not realize but uh fiji where lathala bay was uh, and of course nandy and all of those airfields they were that that was the responsibility was given to new zealand that's right to 
to look after that country because they didn't have their own air force. And it turned out when the Pacific War started, um, it became vit- absolutely vital because most of the shipping lanes across the Pacific were within reach of um, the Japanese reach, apart from that that went to Fiji, wasn't it? That's right. And and so at, at that stage from 1942, probably till 44 or so before they started pushing the Japanese back, um, the, the New Zealand flying boats and the New Zealand uh, reconnaissance bombers keeping those shipping lanes safe was basically keeping the traffic between America and Australia and, of course, New Zealand in between, uh, being able to get through and keep the war effort going. So that's how vital that little place called Fiji was. Well, well I and, certainly didn't realise until I started this. I never really thought about it, to be honest, but I didn't realise how extraordinarily um, crucial Fiji was and, and um, you know, will continue to be in, in some way. But if we hadn't built a base or if the Allies hadn't built some... Um, base on Fiji and had a strong military presence, then it's almost inevitable that the Japanese would have um, uh, established themselves there. And Tonga the same. Fiji and Tonga all come together yeah. and they're bracketed together here. Um, yeah. So it was really important for us to establish ourselves there. But if the Japanese had taken over Fiji, then, then they would have been in a very strong position to attack Australia and New Zealand. Um, and the other thing is, and the Americans came and sort of took over in 1942. They took over command. Um, they took over the command of Fiji, and over for three, through about six extraordinary months, from November uh, 1941 to uh, I think six months later. I remember quite remember the date. Um, that there's civilian construction unit. Um, and under Downer, Downer of the Downer's construction, he was put in charge. Right. And the Aerodrome Construction Squadron, and fundamentally, it was all of New Zealand Public Works got pulled into into uh, constructing Nandi Airfield. And that was, um, and the story, but mostly Nandi, that was crucial because the Americans started to use it for the liberators, for the, for the flying fortresses, for any big aircraft coming through. And for them, it was crucial to keep the ferry route open because. Their traditional bases were um, too close to the Japanese and were vulnerable. And if they wanted to keep the, all the aircraft flying through, particularly to Australia or to the Philippines, they needed to have a major airfield. And so, but that was built by New Zealand. It's certainly seen yep. in the war history as one of the great um, achievements of the Pacific War. It was done in next to no time, quite extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, so you're looking for people out there who served uh, in Nassauri to talk yes, to? Yes, I, I am. I'm, I'm, I've got no shortage of I've been around. I've been doing this for a while now, and I've got no shortage of information, really, of people who were there in the 50s and 60s. So I'm, I'm not particularly looking to, to interview anybody from that period um, uh, because I'm, I'm in danger of being swamped with material. I'm interested right. in earlier war years, um, and I'm interested in memoirs and diaries. Um, there, there are areas which are a bit thin on the ground information, as, as you and I have discussed. And you know, Nasori, which is now where the um, Suva Airport is, that was a big base for a long time with Hudson's and Ventures and Vincent's. Now, there's hardly any anecdote anywhere that we, I've been tracked down from that. So I've been 
I'd, uh, I'd love someone to say, but I've got my dad's diary and he's told a whole lot of colourful stories. I mean, that would be such a resource, as I, I'm sure you would think. Um, the Singapore's, I, I've managed to get stuff for them. But actually, I just want uh, different stories and... Um, but probably from the earlier, probably from the earlier thing from about nineteen, from nineteen forty when Unit Twenty um, arrived, through yep. to um, late nineteen forties is where my um, gap is. But um, but the, one of the things I've I've, I've found, of course, is that um, uh, is it actually isn't hard to find people who were there in the fifties and sixties, and, and there are some wonderful storytellers there. And I, I do have that a, a great diversity of material from that. Um, yeah. Luckily, the wartime stories are thinner on the ground. But luckily, when I did my book on the WAPs, um, some of those women served in Fiji. I have that material. And I have material I did when I was getting um, interviewing war veterans. But there's never quite enough from that era. And I'm hoping that more comes out. Um, right. And also photographs, ephemera. Just all sorts of bits and pieces. And even though I say I've probably got enough from the 1950s and 60s, there's always scope for that special story. And so um, if, if people have done something quite remarkable or quite scandalous or quite um, heroic, um, then it's I'm, I'm always interested in finding out about that. And I'm interested, as I said, in all levels, whether it's the um, air crew, of course, you know, fundamental to what we think of in these Air Force um, bases, but um, very, very, very important um, as well. Of course, are the marine section, and, and a lot of people are surprised to find that you know BOCES are an integral bit of the um, earlier air force, um, right. and you know um, children, people who were wives, people who were wefs and wives, and people who were children on the base. I'm, I'm collecting stories and pictures of them as well. So then I have the um, complex task of weaving it all together into a coherent document yeah but that's always that's the that's always good when it works in the end and it always will work in the end so um does that answer your question for that one dave i'm not sure i think i'm, I'm not sure if i answered that very well oh no it's um, it, it's good it, it certainly answers uh, the question yeah um so this is probably going to be coming out uh, uh, um, I think it's going to. Uh, um, I I will finish writing it at the beginning of next year. That's that's um, when I tend to have the manuscript finished in February, two thousand fifteen. Um, I my understanding at the moment is that it's planned to have it uh, out a year later. It does take nine months to go through the publishing process this, these days, but we think we'll defer it a bit longer. So this will be part of the celebrations for the eightieth birthday of the RNZAF. Uh, right. which I think might be about March or April in 2016. But my actual work on it will be finished. Um, uh, it, sh it should be pretty much have come together by the end of the year. Uh, so as long as I just keep you know, at it, which I will. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a fascinating, it's a treasure hunt. Like all these, these stories, all these books, it's really a treasure hunt and trying to make a book which represents people's experiences widely as possible and to weave in stories into a sort of coherent sort of tapestry and that's what I try to do. 
Right. And with the, the various Air Force books that you've written, which uh, discoveries that you've made have been the most amazing to you? What have been the best stories that have come out um, for you? Oh, gosh. I'm not even sure if they're the um, – I mean, such a treasure hunter, you never quite know what you're going to get. And, and I think the two things that stand out most for me actually aren't in a book yet. Because there, you know, I was I've been interviewing all sorts of interesting people. At one stage, I was fortunate enough to go and interview Alan Breeze, who was an airman on the um, uh, down in Antarctica and in, um, with John Claydon and in the Air Force flight there. And I think it was 1958. And wow. um, at the end of that, and Alan hadn't been interviewed before. And at the end of that, he saw sort of said, "I've got something to show you." And he brought out this um, slide box, and it was full of coloured slides of their time in Antarctica, which had never been seen before, including this marvellous, I think it's been in Air Force News now, this marvellous one of them playing the piano uh, uh, surrounded by snow on Christmas Day. And so so after some discussion and negotiation with the Air Force, Alan was really delighted that the Air Force Museum wanted these. So that was a great... That was a sort of treasure. You just don't know that it's out there. Yeah. And um, I, so I was really thrilled about that. And another time I was really thrilled is I went to I, somebody gave me a tip off that her father would be worth interviewing. This was down in the South Island, and I went to see him. And he wasn't at all keen. And he was an English teacher, retired, very man. Very, you could see that he was um, quite private, and. He'd been set up by his family, and he wasn't quite sure whatever. And he said, well, look, don't interview me. You can borrow these diaries, but don't you know, not to let, show them to my children. Well, I, I still did an interview, but I took away the diaries. Yeah. And it's what you expect of somebody who's terribly good at English, keeps his thoughts to himself, writes them down methodically. And he wrote books and books on what it was like to be a, a young pilot in um, on Wellington's train in Scotland, flying across the Med. Being scared, they never usually write about being scared. They just say that if something happened, they just go and have another drink. But it was, it was just a fantastic record of what it was like to be a young um, bomber pilot in um, in um, the war years. And I think things like that are extraordinary. So there was negotiation um, to copy those for the Air Force Museum, um, and they went on the condition. He agreed on the condition they went to ever to be shown to his family until um after you know after he died because I think right. I think there were things in there that he really didn't necessarily want them to know. But he did, he agreed and it was great. We've got those as a resource, which is fantastic. Marvellous. It is amazing what's out there that people don't know about uh you know, hidden away in wardrobes and shoe boxes and there's there's so much stuff out there. Well even and, even the other day someone who works for my husband um he'd said what I was doing and she said, Oh my my um Father was on Lathala Bay. Would do you think B would like to see my his dad's diary? And right. so home came the diary, and actually, it was there were some really lovely vignettes in it, some some fantastic stories which I wasn't getting from anywhere else. Not least of all, you know, the sort of eyewitness thing of when the first Sunderlands flew flew through in 1944. And what it was like, you know, just all nice anecdote, colourful things, rather than just the facts of them going through, or what it was like when he was sleeping in a tent. It was, you know, he was he wasn't in barrack accommodation, and the hurricane warning hadn't gone out early enough, and so he got 
the tent ripped off him in the middle of the night and yeah, all good, all sorts of good stuff. But I mean, that was just because she knew I was doing it. And there will be other people, and I just love diaries. I just think if people yeah. write diaries that aren't just facts but have got a few stories in it, I would just be delighted if anybody came forward with diaries or or letters home. Um, those are often really wonderful as well. So, and I, I really hope that some of you might, some people listening to this might go scurrying to the wardrobe and, and and thinking guess there was something there and perhaps that could be useful and if if there was i would just be so excited well if anyone out there listening does happen to have anything that might be of interest for b and her research um how is the best way for people to get in touch with you Beth? oh right um well if you google me you can get my website and i should know in fact it's in front of me now here we are my website is is www dot b dawson lowercase all one word b e e d a w s o n dot co dot n z um and that's my um website and then you can see the sort of things i do or uh email me at and this is my um email address that goes with that b b e e at b dawson same or one word dot co dot nz b at b dawson dot co dot nz but if you google you'll get all of that and it's, it's uh, comes up pretty quickly so um that's um and, and honestly i'd be i'd be thrilled even though i've got one thing from this i'd be completely thrilled right well that's well, let's keep our fingers crossed because uh, it'd be great if something does come from this yeah it's a treasure hunt it's really a treasure hunt and trying to get our stories recorded for posterity and and in a way that people will enjoy reading. Absolutely, absolutely. Lovely. Great. Well, thank you very much, B. I, I don't think there's much more we can no, no, talk I, about. No, I think this probably comes around well enough, really. Yeah. Well, uh, well uh, best of luck with uh, finding what you need for the book and, and for the uh, process of getting it finished and published. It's going to be a great one to look forward to, to add to the collection. That's right. Well, I've got a week in Fiji coming up, so that's going to be interesting, trying to do the research from, on, on, the, on the ground there. So I'm enjoying that, looking forward to that as well. Lovely. Marvelous. Thanks for your time, Dave. No worries. Thank you. Lovely. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.